Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are tuning into this second episode of Focus on Facts, the podcast which addresses timely and compelling stories involving the financial markets, investments, real estate, economics, and public policy. I'm Eric Sussman, faculty member at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and managing partner of Clear Capital LLC, and it's my pleasure to have you joining in on what I hope will be an interesting and engaging discussion regarding Tesla, something I know more than a few of you have been egging me on to talk about. Now, you're now probably thinking that I'm going to spend most of this podcast talking about the company's valuation and how it is disconnected from underlying fundamentals, but I am only going to do that in passing because I want to spend most of this podcast discussing and evaluating the billions of dollars in federal and state subsidies, grants, and tax credits that the company has received since its inception, and that really have propelled the company to date. I certainly will mention the impact that these subsidies have had on the company's operating results since they have been so significant, if not distortive, but I want to take a broader perspective to discuss some serious reservations, concerns, and questions that I have about these subsidies and their efficacy. However, before we delve any further into the world of Tesla subsidies and subjects like zero-emission vehicle credits, let's briefly follow up on our last podcast, the inaugural episode of Focus on Facts, when we discussed recent events involving GameStop. And what a week it has been. Of course, while just trying to keep up with the daily machinations and GameStop's stock price, I was very much distracted by the ongoing negotiations surrounding President Biden's proposed $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill and the numerous conspiracy theories espoused by one of Georgia's new congressional representatives, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and her talk of Jewish space lasers among a litany of, shall we say, interesting and attention-grabbing conspiracy theories. At least I now know what I want for Hanukkah this year. For those of you listening in wondering what to get me other than red wine or scotch, a Jewish space laser could definitely be useful in class to deal with unprepared students. Anyhow, back to GameStop, which was trading at $325 a share at the market close on January 29th when I recorded my last podcast, which gave the company a ridiculous $23 billion market capitalization. Well, just as I predicted, the stock plunged this week, trading at roughly $50 at last look, a loss of nearly 85% in just seven trading days. And more losses are likely to come, losses that will principally be borne by retail investors. I suppose it's like what Mark Twain said, and I'm paraphrasing here, the best way to learn not to grab a cat by the tail is to grab a cat by the tail. A slew of Robin Hood and other retail investors, along with perhaps a hedge fund manager or two, are going to learn some very painful life lessons from the GameStop saga. I will just close by saying that I think GameStop probably remains significantly overvalued at $50 a share, but we shall see. It's certainly not a stock for the faint of heart. Well, enough of the GameStop story for now. I imagine we will be revisiting it again at some point in the not-too-distant future. Meantime, without further ado, let's move on to today's topic and Tesla. So please fasten your seatbelts and buckle up. 
Since releasing the first episode of Focus on Facts, more than a few of you have predicted that it was just a matter of time before I dedicated an entire podcast to Tesla's valuation. And how can it possibly have a market capitalization of over $800 billion, nearly four times that of Toyota, more than eight times that of Volkswagen, and more than the sum of the next eight global and publicly traded automakers combined, all despite owning a global market share of less than 1%. Yes, you heard that right. The most valuable automaker on the planet has a market share of less than 1%, seven-tenths of 1% to be precise, and does not even crack the top 20 global automakers in terms of sales volume. And Elon Musk is now the wealthiest person on the planet with a net worth of $185 billion or something along those lines. Of course, had Jeff Bezos not gotten divorced, the numbers might be different, but hindsight is 2020, I suppose. Frankly, Tesla's valuation is worthy of a podcast episode or two on its own. But look, you don't need me to tell you that Tesla stock has been trading in ludicrous mode, to put it in Tesla terms, up 734% alone last year, and is certainly disconnected from its underlying fundamentals. Maybe Tesla was the GameStop gamma squeeze of 2020, as it was the most heavily shorted stock in the market at the beginning of the year, before being supplanted by, who else but, GameStop. At the same time, you also don't need me to tell you that Tesla has shaken up the auto industry and made traditional automakers take electric vehicles seriously. Drive through Silicon Valley or West Los Angeles and you can see this obvious reality for yourselves. I did enjoy the Will Ferrell Super Bowl commercial pitching General Motors' planned transition to electric cars and the apparent goal that we should overtake Norway in electric vehicle sales. Sadly, I think that commercial may have been my favorite part of this year's game, a reflection of this year's yawner of a Super Bowl. Anyhow, just last week, GM announced that it plans to offer only an electric car lineup by 2035. Now look, I know there are a lot of Teslarians out there who will say, Professor Sussman, Tesla's not an automobile company. It's a technology firm. It's an energy company. It's I don't know, one day going to merge with SpaceX, the boring company, and Neuralink, three other Elon Musk-based ventures, and Tesla will be a multifaceted company that will transport you everywhere from the center of the Earth to the far reaches of outer space using solar power, new battery technology, or, I don't know, mental telepathy. Or perhaps Tesla is now a cryptocurrency firm with the revelation yesterday that the company purchased $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. But I want to focus on facts. According to the company's most recent financial reports filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, 2020 automotive sales for the company represented 86.4% of revenues, their highest percentage since 2016 when they represented nearly 91% of revenues. And energy sales, a mere 6.3% of 2020 revenues, flat with 2019 and actually down from 2017 and 2018. So the numbers tell the inescapable truth that Tesla is indeed an automobile company, which does have some really cool technology included as part of their auto offerings. And don't get me wrong, 
After a Jewish space laser, a new Tesla is the second thing I want most for Hanukkah. As I mentioned, we will likely take a deeper dive into Tesla's financial statements, its delivery figures, likely electric vehicle adoption curves, the competitive landscape, and the rest of it in a future episode. But today, I want to focus our discussion analysis on the tremendous subsidies that Tesla has received over the last decade or so, their impact on the company's financial results, to be sure. But more broadly, I want to use Tesla as a case study to ask and address some critical questions. One, should our state and federal governments be providing billions of dollars to companies like Tesla in the first place? And if so, has the way they have done so been optimal? How transparent and accountable should both Tesla and our state and federal governments be with respect to these subsidies? What kind of returns on investment or ROI should we, the taxpayers who ultimately bear the cost of these government actions, demand, require, and receive? Given the challenges of measuring returns on these sorts of subsidies, should they only be made in exchange for more tangible and measurable returns or even investment stakes in the companies benefiting from these subsidies? If companies fail to live up to the expectations or contractual obligations they make with respect to these subsidies, promised employment levels and certain types of jobs, for example, what recourse should there be? And finally, should individual states actually be bidding against one another in order to attract companies and their businesses? Is that a good thing resulting in desired outcomes? Just to whet your appetites, according to goodjobsfirst.org, a nonprofit group that monitors corporate subsidies, and a website I had never visited before, and I'm sure you haven't either, Tesla or its subsidiaries have received over $3.5 billion of direct subsidies from the U.S. government and the states of California, Nevada, New York, Oregon, and Colorado, among several others, consisting of everything from direct payments, grants, and tax abatements. In addition, since 2012, Tesla has realized nearly $3.9 billion in revenues from the sale of what are known as zero-emission vehicle and greenhouse gas regulatory credits that it has received from California and the U.S. government, respectively. According to my advanced mathematics, that amounts to nearly $7.5 billion of subsidies or revenues the company has received from the public sector, essentially you, me, and all taxpayers. Now, keep in mind that during this same period, that is, the years between 2012 and 2020, the company recognized total operating losses in excess of $800 million. You don't need to be an MBA or CPA to realize that without the sale of these essentially 100% margin regulatory credit sales and all those subsidies, Tesla's losses would have been far more substantial, well in excess of $5 billion. Even last year, 2020, the company's best year by far, $1.6 billion or some 80% of the company's reported operating profits came from the sale of regulatory credits, not from traditional revenues from the sale of cars, solar roofs, or energy storage solutions. Okay, at this point, let's take a trip back to the fall of 2014, when representatives from Tesla reached out to a number of states in the western U.S. with an enticing proposal. The company wanted to construct a $5 billion factory, which would create 6,500 high-tech manufacturing jobs producing lithium-ion batteries, the heart of Tesla's cars. It asked five states, California, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, and New Mexico, to put their best foot, or 
feet forward and make them an offer, perhaps an offer they couldn't refuse, to quote Marlon Brando. Keep in mind that by this point, Tesla or its subsidiaries had already received a $465 million low-interest loan from the Department of Energy's Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which the company repaid in 2013. Hundreds of millions of dollars in regulatory credits they had sold to other automakers. And finally, SolarCity, a company operated by Elon Musk's cousins and which we acquired by Tesla in 2016, had received over $950 million from New York to operate a solar cell plant in Buffalo. More on that later. Anyhow, 11 months hence, on September 2nd, 2015, Elon Musk stood next to Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval to announce that the project, the Tesla Battery Gigafactory, would be built at an industrial park near Reno. California, Arizona, Texas, and New Mexico ended up as bridesmaids, or groomsmen, I suppose, or both. From what I understand, California's final offer to Tesla topped out at around $500 million, and that just wasn't really competitive. Indeed, landing the Gigafactory did not come cheap, as the state of Nevada agreed to provide at least $1.3 billion in tax abatements and incentives to the company. As a result, Tesla can essentially operate tax-free Nevada for 10 years, with a substantially reduced tax bill for another decade after that. Since 2017, Story County, home to the Gigafactory, has lost out on some $65 million in tax revenue. Now, here's the question. Was it worth it? Was this deal worth the citizens of Nevada subsidizing $190,000 per promised job? That is the $1.3 billion divided by the 6,500 proposed jobs. Honestly, it's hard to say. The last report I could find, released by Nevada's Office of Economic Development, dating back to 2018, indicated that 7,000 people worked at the plant at that time, which exceeded the 6,500 goal. But according to the report, average wages at the factory were $25.78, below what was originally projected, $27.35 an hour. And in the fine print, it turns out that fewer than 4,500 employees worked an average minimum of 30 hours a week. While the data looks promising, or perhaps not, the report contains no traditional accounting or finance measures to determine whether the significant investment provides an adequate return on taxpayer investment, or what the county and state might have done in the alternative with $1.3 billion dollars. The report was also unclear as to what would happen if Tesla failed to meet expectations or promises, what follow-up there would be, or whether these results were even audited. Meantime, the influx of new jobs has come at a significant price to Reno residents. Countless stories in the local Reno press have highlighted concerns over higher housing costs, if not a lack of available housing generally, increased strains on emergency response teams, and lower local property taxes relative to increased property values, creating numerous additional challenges. Again, the report is completely silent on these issues and externalities. There's a word I don't get to use every day. In any event, the jury remains firmly out as to the benefits of Nevada's largesse, and local and state politicians continue to emphasize that the regional economy will ultimately generate significant state and local tax revenues after 2024. 
I suppose we will just have to wait and see, but it will be at least a decade until we can really assess whether the deal was indeed worth it. Meanwhile, the story surrounding the company's Buffalo Solar Plant is far more sobering. In 2014, as part of the state's Buffalo Billion Project, New York agreed to provide Solar City, now owned by Tesla, with $750 million to construct and operate a solar panel factory. However, almost since inception, the project has been riddled with challenges, problems, delays, and controversy, ultimately leading up to some very troubling findings in an audit conducted by the Empire State Development Department, or ESD, which issued a fairly scathing report in August of last year. I know this is going to completely shock you, so I hope you are still buckled up, but the audit determined that, and I quote, Despite millions of dollars in state funding, selected high-tech projects have yet to create the expected number of jobs. Oversight has not been adequate, and there has been insufficient reports as to the return on investment on these projects. While target employment at the plant, the Solar City plant, was 1,450, only 800 had been employed, barely 55% of the target, and the agreement with Solar City had to be amended several times. The audit was also highly critical of the lack of documentation and economic justification for such a large grant. And listen to this, quote, Despite the state's significant investment, ESD's assessment included only a single-page company profile on SolarCity. And additionally, the cost-benefit analysis performed by ESD was mainly informational and limited to a comparison of the proposed amount of economic assistance and the project's construction budget, end quote. The auto report goes on and on and on, leaving any reader just shaking their head at, well, the apparent negligence involved in the project and grant, from solar soup to solar nuts, I suppose. In response, Tesla has indicated it has been able to meet its employment and investment target requirements as of April 30th, 2019, but ESD officials admit that they have yet to audit these figures as of August 2020, over a year later. One last interesting tidbit is that the state can theoretically claw back $41.2 million each year if Tesla misses job targets. But as one observer said, it will be a miracle if New York taxpayers get their money back from the $750 million they spent building the Riverbend Tesla factory. Finally, before we wrap things up with subsidy specifics, let's head back west again, shall we? To California, which has been the leader in the Zero Emission Vehicle, or ZEV, credit program, and which has now been joined by 10 other states. These states require that automakers sell a certain number of emission-free vehicles relative to their overall sales. The more zero emission vehicles they sell, the more credits they get. Because Tesla only sells electric vehicles, it has traditionally had a healthy surplus of such credits, which it is able to, and this is the really important part, sell to other automakers who were unable to meet the standards. Remember that between 2012 and 2020, Tesla generated nearly $3.9 billion in these ZEV credits and the federal equivalent, greenhouse gas or GHG credits. Again, this was merely revenue generated from selling credits to non-compliant automakers. Now, if you're a Tesla shareholder, you're probably thinking, hey, that's not too shabby. 
But as taxpayers, others might be wondering if this is optimal, letting non-compliant firms buy their way out of some laudable or desired income, the transition to EVs, just to Tesla's benefit. Anyhow, from the looks of it, with competitors from BMW to GM to VW finally releasing a slew of new electric cars, it looks like many, if not most, of Tesla's competitors will not need to purchase credits in the future. This reality will certainly impact Tesla's operating results looking forward. But don't fret, Tesla shareholders. I recently read that the company is lining up to receive over a billion dollars in incentives, subsidies, and tax abatements from Texas and Germany arising from plants it is constructing in both places. So the party ain't nearly over yet. At this point, some of you may be wondering, what about the various state and federal tax credits people received for buying Teslas and other EVs? You haven't mentioned anything about that. Fair enough. And I agree I would be remiss if I didn't. As many of you know and know firsthand, $7,500 in federal tax credits were available for purchases of your Teslas or EVs, in addition to thousands more in state or local credits. Ka-ching, ka-ching, to be sure. Well, who primarily benefited from these generous tax credits provided to electric car purchasers? Well, I hope you still have your seatbelts fastened because the academic and other research is patently clear. The rich, or at least the well-off. A 2016 study out of UC Berkeley concluded that the top income quintile of income earners had received about 90% of the credits. Oh, and quintile, another word I don't routinely use, represents the top 20%. The following year, a subsequent analysis of nearly 100,000 rebates issued from California's Clean Vehicle Incentive Program found that 83% of recipients report yearly incomes of more than $100,000. A May 2019 Congressional Research Service report found that 78% of tax credit recipients had AGIs, or adjusted gross incomes, of $100,000 or more. Other studies from places like the Department of Transportation and the Pacific Research Institute reached the same conclusions. These tax credits have basically inured to the wealthy, or at least the well-off. And the question is, how many of these people would not have purchased their Teslas without the tax credit, or had the credit been far lower? Well, while I have not read or seen any research to answer this particular question, I am going to go out on a proverbial limb and say, very few. I know many Tesla owners, some of you who are listening in, and I really hope you're not insulted when I call you price and elastic, that you still would have bought the car in the absence of the credit. I truly hope you'll forgive me. And if all this research, combined with a little common sense, is true, then what these particular credits have done is to transfer additional wealth to those who already have it at a time when wealth inequality is at the highest levels it has ever been in California and in the United States as a whole. Finally, there is one other piece of research that I should cite, co-authored by one of my former students, Daniel Aabdia, who is now an assistant professor at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. His article, The Politics of Government Resource Allocation, Evidence from U.S. State Government Award Economic Incentives, concluded that, and I am quoting again, politically connected firms commit to fewer jobs and less capital investment per dollar of incentive awarded. 
In sum, state governments disproportionately award incentives to politically connected firms, even though these awards are a less effective allocation of government resources. Our study thus identifies a channel through which politicians can transfer rents to connected corporations at the expense of local taxpayers, end quote. So what are the key takeaways from this second episode of Focus on Facts? One, there should be far greater oversight, accountability, and transparency into federal and state subsidies, including audits and required disclosures. While governmental accounting standards require disclosures about tax abatement agreements, including the gross dollar amount of taxes abated during any reported accounting period, these disclosures don't go nearly far enough, in my opinion. Specifically, governmental agencies should be required to provide demonstrable return on investment figures to stakeholders, given the dollars and risks involved. And should companies fail to live up to contractual obligations, there should be appropriate and timely repercussions. Two, tax subsidies or credits that increase wealth inequality should be non-starters or subject to far greater scrutiny. The federal and state credits awarded people with six-figure incomes that purchased Teslas seem really misguided to me. Three, interstate competitions to compel companies to relocate to their cities, counties, or states with ever-increasing tax incentives and subsidies seem problematic, pitting state against state, taxpayer against taxpayer, politician against politician, with significant opportunity for corruption. I admit that I am not sure there's any simple solution here, but it just seems really suboptimal. Four, and finally, yes, Tesla's operating results have been significantly impacted, if not distorted by their ever-increasing reliance on sales of regulatory credits to boost operating results, transactions which are not ultimately sustainable. I am troubled by the fact that the U.S. government and countless states have provided such remarkable subsidies to a company that is now opening plants in Berlin and Shanghai, transferring at least some of its technology and capabilities overseas, arguably at our own expense. And in the process, we have made Elon Musk the single richest person on the planet. That irony is not lost on me. Now, before I wrap things up and I incur substantial wrath from those big Tesla fans out there, and I know there are more than a handful of you out there, I know and realize that countless other corporations engage in this same sort of behavior, from Nike to Amazon to Lockheed Martin to Chevron to Royal Dutch Shell. And who can blame a company for taking advantage of what is presented to them and playing the game? Fair enough. I can't argue with that logic. There was absolutely nothing illegal in anything Tesla has done here. So I'm not blaming them or Elon Musk for merely taking advantage of what was available or presented to them. And I should also disclose my overall view that the transition to electric vehicles or EVs is probably a good thing, that reducing our dependence on fossil fuels and the environmental impacts from particulates to fracking is a positive. But how to best promote this transition remains the big question mark. With that, thank you once again for tuning in to Focus on Facts, and I wish you all a very good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time it happens to be when you listened in. Oh, and one last gentle reminder, what do I want for Hanukkah this year? 
That's right. A Jewish space laser or a new Tesla are at the very top of my wish list. (laughs) 